Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by David Coggeshaw, who is the uh, writer and co-producer, right, mm-hmm. on Orphan First Kill. Indeed. Um, I am uh, I'm a fan of this movie, and we, well, I'll talk about why in a second, uh, but I'm really glad to have him on uh, because I want to I talk about what we the moment we are living through, which uh, is described by some as uh, uh, hot horror fall. We're in we're in hot horror summer, hot horror fall. It seems like the only thing that studios are making that are like constantly a in theaters and b hitting. Um, but also there was some there's some controversy about you know orphan first kill and theaters versus streaming, et cetera, et cetera. We'll talk about all that as well. Uh, but thank you again for being on the show. Um, let's talk about orphan first kill. How? Uh, who who exactly was it that was like we need a sequel to the uh, to the surprise hit <laughs> uh, Orphan from you know two thousand two thousand eight two thousand nine whenever that came out uh, to to we need we need we need more Esther we need more Esther uh, the answer is nobody needed it uh, <laughs> it just sort of happened uh, like this is one of the funniest comments I always get of like who the fuck needed this am I allowed to say swear in this show <laughs> yeah you, that's fine it's like who, who asked for this movie the answer is nobody but what I'm glad is that people have embraced it yeah so like. It took years to get this done. Um, probably 2014, <clears throat> uh, one of my best friends, David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick, who wrote The First Orphan, it's the movie that launched his career. Um, he had, when that movie came out, just to preface, I went opening weekend to see it in the theater with him. And I sat between David and little, at the time, 12 year old uh, Isabel Furman. And I, you know, never seen Orphan, so I was like, oh, this little kid is sitting next to me, and I'm watching the movie, and I'm watching this like evil kid get more and more evil, and I finally watch her kill a nun with a hammer, <laughs> and I'm looking over at this kid like, what the fuck? Oh my god, I can't believe this cherubic, adorable little girl is just a psycho murderer. So it was an absolutely terrific experience in the theater with my friend and the star, and I'm a big fan of gothic horror. I've always... I just feel like this is a gothic horror movie, uh, at least the original one was. And so I had also been in a writer's group for, and have been for 20 years, um, with a group of guys who, and, and women who, uh, just all sort of came up together. And one of them was David Johnson McGoldrick. And, uh, so he had read me a million times. And so a few years later he came to me and he's like, Hey man, I have this batshit awesome idea for an orphan prequel that tells the story of how she gets here from Estonia. You know, but at the time he was writing Aquaman and Aquaman 2 and all this giant stuff taking him all over the world. And he's like, I don't have the bandwidth or the time to write this, but this is so up your alley. Uh, would you be interested? If we could find anybody to pay you to write the screenplay, would you be interested? And I'm like, hell yeah, man. Orphan's one of my all-time favorite movies. And I love scary kid movies. Um, I've always gravitated toward them and I've always wanted to write one. Uh, and so we, we set a breakfast where all we literally, all we had was, Hey, we're, this is the story of how Esther gets here from Estonia. And, um, I mean, I don't know if your listeners have already seen the movie. I'm not sure (laughs) how deep to go into it, but basically, you know, there's sort of, there was this challenge of how to make, Esther, you know, the villain of the first movie into the protagonist of the second. And of course, you know, how do you 
you know, how do you make your shark this, the hero is you put it up against a meaner shark. Um, yeah. And so basically we, we set a breakfast with the, with the, the people from Silver Pictures um, and Dark Castle and the original director, Jean-Michelet Sarah. And we had a breakfast and David and I basically just told him that. We said, this is the story of how Esther gets here from Estonia. We're going to pit her against someone worse. And uh, that's pretty much it. And it was just a lot of times I'm discovering, you know, in a career, a lot of times you pitch for 20 minutes every detail of a movie and you don't get the job. And sometimes you pitch for 10 seconds and you do get the job. But what happened, we, we left that breakfast feeling really, this is you know, years ago, 2015 maybe, um, feeling really good. And then we didn't hear anything for a day, a week, a month, a year. And two years went by. We didn't hear anything. I completely forgot about it. I went off and did a bunch of other stuff. I, and at the time, I had just come off of doing a draft of Thundercats uh, for Warner Brothers, which was like my first, you know, giant scale world building. And I'm just like a little thriller writer. I'm a horror guy. And uh, I had just come off of, of that. And it was like world building. You got to build, you know, one world and then blow it up and then build another world, <laughs> you know. And it was just this mind boggling scale that I came off of just feeling completely burnt out wondering if I even knew how to do this anymore. And at that moment, I happened to be on vacation and my, my then agent called and he's like, Hey man, did you pitch on an orphan prequel? <laughs> and I was like, what? He's like, I don't know, man. I just got a call about an orphan prequel. I'm like, I attended a breakfast two years ago. <laughs> like that's, that's the last I heard of it. He's like, we just got an offer. Do you want, you want to write the orphan prequel? And I'm like, fuck yeah, a hundred percent. I do. Cause like, uh, you know, I really had it clear in my head. I, I, that's the tone I can slip in and out of very easily, um, as opposed to, you know, writing a huge action movie with six protagonists where every protagonist has to be serviced in every fight against six <laughs> antagonists. It's like, yeah. fucking, so like, oh my God, scary kid in a house with a family. I'll, I can, I can do that all day. So I was yeah. like, hell yeah, total palate cleanser. And I jumped in and, you know, we hammered out a plot. And I just got to work and it was one of those scripts that just felt right from the start, like from fade in, it just typed easily. And a lot of times that's a good sign. Uh, and yeah, just crank this thing out and Dark Castle was happy with it. And, but nothing happened. It just sort of sat there again mm -hmm. for another, I mean, this would have been 2018 or something that I wrote it <laughs> like finally yeah. around 2020. As COVID was kicking off, like suddenly there was, we had a director for it, William Brent Bell. And I was like, holy shit. And we had a new studio, E1, and it just started gaining momentum. And you kind of watch these things incrementally move forward. Um, you know, there's no such thing as a green light. You know, the green light is a fucking myth. A green light is actually just this incremental series of tiny yeah. little steps uh, that can go away at any time. And for me, the... Um, the sign that your movie's actually probably going to get made is when people start taking flights. And that's, you know, that to me was like, oh my God. Suddenly we had Julia Stiles on board. And what was crazy was we made this movie in, in what, late 2020. So we were in peak pre-vaccine COVID. One of the mm -hmm. only movies that was made during this period where like, you know, everything was six feet apart. Everything was in face shields. You know, I watched the movie and what I see is Julia Stiles having just taken off a face shield before she said her line. 
I, see, I watch that love scene and I go, they were wearing face shields and standing six feet apart until the director yelled action. And we made this movie in those circumstances, again, pre-vaccine, in Winnipeg in winter, in, in a tiny little house, and somehow nobody got COVID. Uh, I, I don't, <laughs> it was during Winnipeg's biggest peak of COVID. <laughs> and the only person in production who caught COVID was me, and I was 3,000 miles away here in Los Angeles, and I made an ill-advised trip to Home Depot, you know, yep. and ended up laid up for 10 days, and somehow they all escaped it. Yeah. Whereas, well, I... It, that's that's really interesting. I uh, so you so you were kind of watching remotely. Yeah, uh, were were they were they? I had a live feed. You in the live feed, or I had, it was okay. amazing. I, and I wish I could do this on every movie. Um, they they gave me a live feed from Video Village, so I saw everything that Camera One and Camera Two w- were seeing, and that includes them just turning on the cameras at seven a.m. and it's just they're on and the mics are on from even when everything's just getting set up. Uh, so I just would get my coffee in the morning and I would plop down, um, and just watch and observe and basically eavesdrop. Um, and then text, you know, if I saw something was, you know, overtly not happening the way it should, you know, dialogue wise, you know, I would be able to shoot a text to Brent and be like, Hey, you know, it's the meaning of the line is, is really this, you know, Mm -hmm. it might be. It might be a good note to give, that kind of thing. But for the most part, I just sat back and watched. At the time, my wife, Lori Evans-Taylor, she um, was prepping her first directorial feature that she wrote and directed. And uh, so she was psyched to have be able to sit next to me for nine hours a day and just watch a movie get made. Uh, yeah. And just you know, learn all the, you know, terminology that had slipped through the cracks of the books she had read and the, the director she had talked to. And, you know, you just get to see on set. She wanted on set experience, but it's fucking COVID. There, there, were, there were no sets to visit. Yeah. So that was a big, uh, yeah. that was a big plus. We got to do it together. That's pretty cool. That's cool. Uh, we, you know, it's it's interesting uh, hearing you talk about writing this character because uh, it's funny. We, we, had, we, had, we had joked a little bit on Twitter about, uh, Iconic movie villains, and you know, you you suggested humbly, very humbly, Esther <laughs> as a as a as as a new iconic movie villain. But I, I do think that there's there is something um, there's something very uh, intense and and different about her this time than in in the first the first the first movie. In, in the sense that it does feel like there's something a little more intentional about some of the. Um, like smoking the cigarette in the car yeah. or something. Like that. So how do you how do you as the guy who comes in to write the sequel, you know, after having loved the first one, how do you kind of balance that uh, effort to make her a little extra, mm-hmm. shall we say, and and also stay true to the original character that obviously there are beats that you have to follow and plot points that you have to you have to get to to uh, to, to make that work. That's what got me excited about the movie to begin with is because if you recall, the uh, again, the last five minutes of the first movie are where you get to see behind the curtain with her. You get to see her be, you know, am I allowed to say an adult? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, Spoilers for the, you know, 13-year-old uh, hit movie Orphan coming up. Yeah, here. honestly. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, but, like, I remember in the when I first started talking about this job, I remember thinking, like, oh, wait, we get to have all the fun that they couldn't have in the first movie because they had to preserve their twist. And it's like, you know, when you see her in the last five minutes of that movie and she's a fully-fledged, you realize she's a fully-fledged adult with, with you know, the desires and, you know, the 
flaws and anger uh, that comes with that. I was like, oh my God, we get to actually play with that. We get to see her want to drink and smoke and fuck and, and do all this stuff that like you couldn't do because she was in little pigtails acting like a kid in the first movie. And I'm like, oh my God, from the get go, we can be like, she's a grown up. <laughs> Here's her process. You know, Here's how we, you know, and that's why moments like where she swipes the, um, the vodka from the stewardess, you know, and goes in and just starts chugging vodka in the bathroom is like, that was one of the first moments I thought of where I'm like, Oh my God, we get to see her drink. We get to see her smoke. The scene in the car with maniac, like was again, one of the first things I thought of where I'm like, we get to see her drive. She's going to have this big scarf billowing out. And it, you know, in that way you got to have more fun with the character. Cause there was just, there's this whole other side of her that they couldn't explore in the first movie. And now in subsequent movies, you totally can. And you, it's all about the woman behind the curtain, you know? Whereas yeah. the first movie yeah. was all curtain. <laughs> and then yeah. you throw open the curtain at the end, like, ah! <laughs> so are all... Oh, I remember... I remember seeing that movie in in theaters with an audience. Uh, you know, it was it was a preview screening, so it was like half critics, half half paying... Or, you know, not paying, but, but regular moviegoers. Mm-hmm. And the... the uh, it's one of those very rare experiences that you remember for years afterwards because the oxygen just like goes out of the room. You know, people are like gasping and, you know, it was a it was a real it was a real moment. And, uh, you know, I'm going to. All right. I'm going to just give a spoiler warning here for Orphan First Kills because so we can talk a little bit about sure. what happens in that. So if folks want to switch off, it's on Paramount Plus. Uh, you can download uh, Paramount Plus. Go watch it now. Uh, I think you can also rent it on uh, on VOD. So if you wanna if you wanna go do that, do still that. Still in a few theaters um, so, too. <laughs> still, in, it, it it actually is. It's funny. I I googled it to see if it was still in theaters here in Dallas, and it oh, is. Nice. So if it's it, it's still in it's still in some we're theaters. We're in want to go watch it in right theaters. Now. We were in five hundred. Now we're in two hundred. Uh, um, it's uh, I'm, I'm going to come back to this because I'm I'm I have I have questions yeah, about sure. this from your from your perspective. But uh, so spoilers for Orphan First Kill. If you haven't seen it yet and you want to see it, uh, flip off and come back later. Um, but uh, so you know, in this movie, there is a similar twist. There is a you know, I, you you uh, have a big reveal in the middle again. And I'm I'm curious from your POV uh, as the writer. Uh, you know, how do you hit that without it, A, being obvious, but also, B, without just doing a rehash of the first one? Because I, I'll i be honest, as I was watching Orphan First Go, I was like, okay, this is good, but like, it feels like we're hitting a lot of the same mm-hmm. beats here. And like, oh, no, this is this is totally different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I think we, we drew that out to the absolute maximum amount of time that we could have. Um, and I, it's funny, I watch it in the theater. I've, I've, been, I've popped into at least a dozen screenings. Um, a lot of times with William Brent Bell, he and I just go drink it, you know, get some beers at Bubba Gump and walk into the City Walk Theater and just like watch audiences watch the twist. Uh, and it's great. But one thing I have noticed is that people's patience is just starting to fray a little bit when the twist gets there and then there's this like boost of energy and everyone goes what the fuck and it becomes this whole other movie for the second half and you you just feel the air come back into the room and you're like oh okay like now we're doing this i completely agree that you know for the first half like we're, we're kind of lulling you into a feeling of well we're gonna have some fun showing you esther's process behind the curtain but ultimately she's doing stuff she's done before we're just showing it you know we're showing you know the the mindset behind it 
And it, what's funny is that there were scenes that ended up on the cutting room floor that I really, really miss. But uh, I realized if they were in there, we would have pushed that crucial two minutes or three minutes or four minutes. And we might have lost some people because I did see that a little bit on social media. I would see like, oh, man. I was just about to give up on this movie and holy fuck. And I'm like, oh, thank God you, you lasted those couple of minutes. And it's like, yeah, we had to lose a kill or two uh, to, to, move that, to move that twist up. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately those are things we can use in three. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, well, so we're, are we going to see an orphan, orphan, orphan second kill? Third, I, what's, I don't know how many kills we're up to. I would to love now, to. But, uh, we're, uh, it would, you know, it would be, a, I don't even know what the process would be. I'm cursed with hyphens in my, in my career. You've probably noticed. Um, so yeah, it's going to end up being like orphan second kill or some shit, but, um, I don't know. I mean, I know that, um. You know, the, the brainchild behind Orphan, the real sort of heart of Orphan, is um, David Leslie Johnson, McGoldrick, and, uh, who's the writer, and Alex Mace, who's the producer. And uh, they're sort of the gatekeepers of, of Esther. And, uh, I mean, we all had a terrific experience on this, so I would hope they would come back to me. Because, honestly, I, I love it. Like, I'm doing a lot of different kinds of movies now, but, like, honestly, this is the kind of shit I love doing. I could write... I, I told these guys, they, they kind of were like, hey, you know, are you interested in... You know, you've got kind of a big year. Like, you're interested in doing a third or fourth movie? And I'm like, yes, a hundred percent, yes. I would do it in a fucking second. So I'm waiting for the, you know, the official uh, ask, and hopefully it'll come. But I would totally do it. Yeah. I would love it. I would. She's just fun. I, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it is fun, and I, you know, it, obviously Isabel Furman is great in this movie, but Julia Stiles, uh, like, almost a revelation. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just, I was, I was. Uh, I was so into the reveal again halfway through that it, it, for, for folks who have not seen it and have still stuck with the the show, it, it turns out that she's actually a killer too, and she has uh, covered up the murder of her daughter, who uh, Esther Isabel Furman is supposed to be, you know, the returned, yeah. the re- the return. She is impersonating uh, and is insinuating herself into the family. Um, but she's so good in this. She's so I like just just really magnetic to mm-hmm. watch. Yeah, and it's so fun. It's so fun to watch things cut together, too, and come from, you know, you watch take after take, and now that we had a ton of takes, we were shooting in Winnipeg and COVID, I think people wanted to get through shit quick, as quickly as possible. <laughs> but, like, you watch it cut together, and you go, oh, my God, that thing she just did with her eyes is so goddamn evil. And, like, I didn't notice that on the day of. I didn't notice that choice she made. Um, and it's so funny, because, honestly, I watch the movie, and I go, how the hell do people not see this twist coming? There are so many hints. You know, I think that the... You know, I, I watched that scene where the family uh, gathers at the airport um, and welcomes her home, and the, the brother hugs her and just has this look of like, "I don't think this is my sister." <laughs> and it's like he's got the he's got that sort of eyes. And I'm like, "Oh God, they're gonna they're gonna see that shot. They're gonna know. Oh, they're gonna know." And they don't. They don't. <laughs> well, I, I I do think the first one helps with this, right? Because again, you have that sensation of like, okay, this feels a little bit like a retread like the the brother is standoffish like the original mm-hmm. brother right like like okay that's that's kind of the same thing but it's funny you now that you, you when you put it like that i was watching it again last night to to prep for this and uh as i was watching it i was like okay they are they're very clearly setting up the the reveal you just can't mm-hmm. see it you 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 can't it is it's very well hidden it is a it's it is great and i would have loved to have seen it with an audience in a theater um, what exactly is the story here between this movie uh, getting getting a day and date release, more or less? What what happened there? I mean, look, when you're the 
screenwriter, you know, a lot of times you're not privy to these conversations. Yeah. But my perception of it was that Paramount was, was looking at this and going, well, this is a good, fun movie, but it's a prequel to a small, you know, relatively small hit from 13 years ago. Like, I could mm-hmm. see how they're like, ah, this, yeah. this could either work or this could be like a complete shit show uh, in terms of release. So, I mean, they they touted it as like, this is, we're going to experiment with this big new, you know, idea of complete platform release on the same day, you know, which they, they set, they, they announce to you very like, we're going to do this. And you're kind of like, isn't that going to fuck the theaters? You know, it's like, mm. but then, you know, honestly, I didn't expect, I didn't know what to expect. Honestly, I thought this movie might completely fail or, or be, hated uh i didn't know how the horror community was going to react to it um part of me was hoping like it might even just sort of fade away so that it you know like in case people hated it like at least it wouldn't you know uh explode in my face um but i i noticed when advanced screening started happening and i'm trying to remember who it was it might have been like john squires or somebody um who just had did sort of a blind item of like i just saw a little horror movie that i thought would be shitty and actually, I totally loved. And I remember that it was, you know, a Monday or something. I remember thinking, oh my God, what if that's, what if that's ours? What if, cause I'm trying to think of what else it could be, you know? Uh, and I just remember thinking, and then I saw a couple more like that. And I'm like, I'm beginning to think they're talking about OFK. And, uh, and just sure enough that this reaction occurred and like the horror community embraced it. I'm like, they're the ones I was most worried about because they look at me. They look at my track record and like, who the fuck is this guy? You know, and this movie's 13 years late, and Isabel's playing a 12 year old at 25. Like, it's there's this movie has every reason not to work, everything working against it. <laughs> and for whatever reason, people have just embraced it. It was funny, it's like the, the, the movie that went out, I still feel is like a movie that we were halfway through post, and then I just sort of uh, I stopped getting emails, and suddenly that's the movie. You know, there were still like lines where I'm like, I want that removed, <laughs> you know, and like you just never get your email responded to. And then the movie comes out. And you're like, oh, so this is it. I guess this is the movie. Uh, you know, I never feel like something's finished. Uh, as a writer, you have very little control, except, you know, when you're writing ADR lines. But like, I'll give you an example. Uh, there, there's uh, Julia had an improv line where I guess Brent was sort of like, just just say something about the parrot. And uh, she basically was like you know, you know, all parrots are, what, what is it? All, all macaws are parrots, but not all parrots are fucking macaws. Right. Yeah. And she just said this. And I remember watching her say this on, on like on the day I'm going, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't get this joke. Like, okay, there, there's a, a weird take. All right. You know? And then I watched it end up in the cut and I, I, and I just never got the line. I was like, I don't even understand what she's saying here, <laughs> you know? And it stayed in the movie, and I kept going, I, I think we should, you know, maybe lose that. And then I would go to theaters, and that line kills every single time. The audience cracks up laughing, and I sit there going, I still don't get it. I don't understand what the fuck that line is. A guy tweeted the other day, he's like, the the uh, Oscar for best original screenplay for a single line goes to Dave Coggeshall for all macaws are fucking parrots. And I'm like, dude, I didn't write that line. <laughs> like, That's I so funny. That, God, that is funny. <laughs> That is funny. I because I th- that line jumped out to me as well as I, I it's just a very it's a very 
you know what it is? It's a, it's a very humorously patrician sort of mm-hmm. line. It's like, how do you not understand this? That, you know, uh, the differences between macaws and parrots. Come on. It's like the difference between a rapier and a broadsword. Like, you know, I like it, but it it, it works for the character. People do that after. They're like, is he using an epee or a foil? Because I don't believe that an epee you could actually stab somebody with in the climax, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. I think that's actually the source of that's why the joke works. Yeah. We went for something similar in a line that got kind of butchered, which was the um, get Gunner Pajalsta line, uh, where, you know, it's basically just a rich kid using the one Russian word he knows, you know, Pajalsta. Uh, but in the on the day of the actor pronounced it Pajalsta. <laughs> and like, I remember thinking, I remember texting Brett going, that's not how you pronounce the word. <laughs> this fucking kid would know how to pronounce the word. You know, because it's the one Russian word he can trot out. And, like, that's what little, rich, highly private school educated kids do. They flaunt their education even as they're sucking down beers. And uh, and I remember just, and he did a second take with Pyalsta. And I'm like, fucking pronounce the word right, you know? So it ended up in the cut as Pyalsta. And I just kept being like, dude, we have got to ADR this thing. We've got to ADR this thing. And, again, they didn't. And it ended up in the movie, and the audience laughs. And I think the way Brent explained it to me, he's like, look, he's a guy who knows his one Russian word, but he doesn't even know how to pronounce it because he's this total douchebag. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> like if we could take, you know, if people actually go on that journey, you know, go down that rabbit hole to understand the line. But again, audience liked it. So this was a lot of these were a lesson in a humbling lesson in me realizing that my radar is sometimes just off. And that sometimes mm-hmm. you fight battles and you should maybe step back and look at it from 35,000 feet and be like, am I wrong here? Because as you see audiences react to the movie, you're like, shit, they love a line that I hated or they hated a line that I loved. You know, they're always what you, you can always tell from an audience like <laughs> early on if it's going to be an audience that digs the movie based on. I found that one of the, um, the sort of canary in the coal mine lines is um, <laughs> when the doctor is explaining to the art history teacher, like the history of Esther. And he says to the family, you know, and or he says he's describing what she did to the last family who took her in. There's like crime scene photos of just like blood and mayhem. And she's like, and when uh, he rebuffed her advances, uh, let's just say she lives here now in a mental institution, yeah. you know. And uh, that, that line to me is one of those lines where you're like, the audience, the audience cracks up on that line. Like you're in for a good time. And if they don't, you're like, OK, we're going to have to. I really hope we win them over, you know. Yeah. Did you did you guys preview this for test audiences or or, or I don't no? know. That's that's honestly yeah. I don't know. I was I did not even know the movie was coming out until like three weeks okay. before okay. it came out. They're like, hey, it's coming out <laughs> with this giant okay. release, and we you know we did. Well, I guess you want to talk about theaters later, but. Uh, well, let's let's talk about that because I, I I this is again this is a movie I wish I had seen with an audience because I feel like that that sort of reaction uh, as you've seen you know at, at theaters is something that is that is fun to experience. I will say there's two um, big but, reaction mo- like there's the the twist and what I love about the twist is like the air the air goes <gasps> when the gunshot happens and you pan to to Julia and then you have the cut and then the line that always like sends you into the second half of the movie that the audience tends to dig is she's just looking at her and she goes. Let me get this straight. You're a grown ass woman. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's one of those lines where the audience is like, "Oh, we're doing we're doing crime school now. Like we're doing okay." And the whole thing is like teaching yeah. Esther how to be Esther. Like that's a whole Easter egg for the second movie is like, "Here, I'm going to teach you all of the tricks you're going to use in the original movie." 
you know, sorry, I just yeah. took a segue. No, that's fine. I, I have I have a interpretation question. If you don't want to answer it, don't uh, feel free to feel free to rebuff. But does the uh, are are we to believe that the cop believes that the mother was the killer of the original Esther? Does he does he think that she uh, did it, or is is he still just looking for the lost girl? I think he know. I think he thinks. I think he knows. I think it's a he thinks it's a Jambonay situation. You know. Uh, I think he doesn't know necessarily how it went down, but that this girl was not kidnapped, uh, that something happened and this family has been stonewalling. Um, and so I think, and one thing I like about Brent, uh, the way he portrayed the cop is he portrayed him as very competent. You know, I like the fact that, you know, when Esther, when the cop is sitting in his, in his office and doing the fingerprint and realizing they don't match between the original and the new Esther, you know, he hears that sound and he, you know, he actually takes the gun out of his drawer. You know, that was a choice Brent made. And I'm like, this is a competent guy who probably is a war veteran, you know, and you, it's these little moments that he gives, like with the water glass, where he notices that Esther left the room to fill her water glass and didn't, yeah. didn't fill it when she came back in. He's like, I'm fucking on to you. That's what that whole move. Yeah. That's what that whole moment is supposed to be, is him looking at this little girl and being like, welcome home, kid, who I know is not the little girl, <laughs> you know, and you don't necessarily know why until that moment, you know, when Esther stabbed the shit out of him and says, you know, how did you how did you know I'm not Esther? You know, even her own mother doesn't know. And it's like, yeah, kid, she does. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was, yeah. again, one of the first lines I thought of was like, oh, I can't wait to write that thing on page 55. Right. Where we do this fucking turn. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, let me. Uh, all right. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the distribution of the movie. And again, you know, as as a screenwriter, it's these are you know not necessarily your calls to make. But I am uh, I am curious from your your perspective as as a filmmaker. You know, the difference between getting that theatrical release and getting the streaming release, and also just how that works for you on the business end. And, and what I mean here is, I I hear a lot of rumblings. More, more, and more every week. Frankly, of people suggesting that a strike is coming. Writers Guild is headed towards a strike because the residuals are bad and the information is bad, and like nothing is quite working in the world of streaming. Um, as a working writer, as as somebody who you know had this movie go day and date, and also you know who has worked on TV shows, et cetera, et cetera. From your from your perspective, how is all that shaking out? Do you think? The math is an alchemy I don't understand, and I think that benefits the companies. <laughs> it's, it's all very confusing. Um, I don't actually know what the finances of Orphan First Kill will be because you, you read about these settlements that have been reached. People like Eric Heiser, you know, for Bird Box, and suddenly there are people actually, I guess, I don't know if you'd call it suing, but you know, sicking the Writers Guild for for residual. You're basically looking for that number that would be like, look, if if this were not a streaming movie, what would I have made for residuals? What am I sacrificing by having it be a streaming movie? And how do we calculate mm-hmm. our, our worth? Uh, and it's just tough because, you know, we live in a world where people will watch, you know, will click a movie for 10 seconds and be like, nah, I'm not in the mood for this. And that counts as a view. It's like I get the companies going, you know, and, and we're, I think ultimately the, the it's going to have to be all about transparency. And I know current companies are never into transparency, but I think that's what ultimately the guild action is going to be is like, Hey, we need to figure out how many eyeballs are on these things. How, you know, how long they're watching them for. We need the raw data. Um, 
And I think that's probably what that effort will be about. You know, when you hear that your movie's coming out on streaming, your head immediately goes, well, okay, how does that affect my residuals? How does that affect, you know, theatrical? Uh, but theatrical, at least in my experience, does not benefit the writer too much unless you have a giant hit and it hits these benchmarks that trigger mm -hmm. bonuses. So it's not like you get a percentage of box office. Um, right. You get, like, if the movie makes $30 million, you get a bonus. If it makes $60 million, you get another bonus and so on and so on. But, like, that was never going to happen here. So, like, I get, you know, I have my friend will text me and be like, dude, we're up to 32 million worldwide. And like your heart swells. And then you have this moment of what does that actually mean for me? <laughs> like that doesn't, yeah. I was like, okay, that's great for the, uh, you know, that's great for the franchise. It's great for the distributors. And, um, but like, and I don't get a piece of that. So it's, I don't necessarily, it would have been great to have a giant hit that would have triggered some of those bonuses. But honestly, I never expected it to be. I always thought this would be sort of a niche horror movie that would not be a big theatrical hit. But in retrospect, you know, we made, I think, $5 million domestically on less than 500 theaters, which is pretty yeah. fucking good in terms of per, yeah. per screen average. I think we had a very high per screen average. I think we were second next to Top Gun Maverick, you know, uh, in terms of that at, at the time we were doing. And so you kind of go, you know what? This might have been, this could have been a bigger hit than it was, um, but Honestly, I don't know what that would have meant to me financially. Yeah. I'm just psyched that people are liking it. I'm psyched that it's not, you know, I've had a couple of <laughs> you know, things that don't look great on your resume. And, you know, this one, suddenly I'm going, hey, this one does. Holy shit. That's great. <laughs> no, that's I, I it's again, I'm uh, I am pleased that that folks have found it because I did. I did enjoy it. Uh a great deal. And it looks, it looks for the record. I mentioned this in my review. If people are listening to this and reading had who had read my review, the, the screener link that we got was weirdly messed up. Uh, so I, I wrote about that a little bit, but it looks, it looks perfectly fine on Paramount plus uh, 4k. I watched it again last night. Like I said, looks good. So don't worry about that. Um, uh, if you want to check it out and you should, you should watch it. Cause it's a, it's a fun movie. We, uh, I, I just want to, I want to mention one other thing that we, we had talked a little bit about on Twitter before I let you go, uh, where all of the real conversations happen, twitter.com. Um, the, the world of piracy and streaming and, and, you know, the, the suggestion that it does not matter to the filmmakers, to the artists when this sort of thing, uh, when, you know, something gets downloaded, not from Paramount Plus or not from VOD. Um, as a filmmaker, as an artist, how do you how do you respond to those people? Uh, I think it's I, I don't actually know the extent of piracy. Um, I have no idea if it's an epidemic that is costing shit tons of streams and money or if it's just like a bunch of knuckleheads and it doesn't it's a drop in the bucket. I, I actually don't know. Um, I do take issue with the people who defend it as not theft. Um and their justification always is, hey, it's a drop in the bucket for HBO Max. I'm like, yeah, I'm not HBO Max. Like, streaming numbers matter to me. You know, streaming numbers matter in terms of eventually what is calculated in, uh, they don't call them residuals. I don't even, it's still a green envelope, but it's streaming, it's different. Um, I'll just call it residuals. So it does, it does matter. Numbers of streams matters. Numbers of rent, you know, every time someone pirates a movie, they are not paying $3.99 to rent it. You know, and that is something I get a piece of. 
And so there's this, I think, a willful denial um, from from some people of like, I'm just stealing from or I'm just borrowing something from HBO Max. I'm not actually taking something off of a shelf. It's a copy of a copy, you know, and you go, yeah, that's uh, I don't know. <laughs> that you are doing some mental gymnastics to explain how that yeah. is different from grabbing lipstick off a shelf, you know? Um, yeah. I think if you have to jump through hoops to explain why something's not theft, it's probably theft. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that's a good way to put it. If you have to, if you have to explain why something's not theft, it's probably, you've probably stolen. And I just, I just, uh, I, I disagree with the argument that you're only stealing from, from Paramount Plus, um, because that's just not true. And that, that displays a, a naivete about the, the sort of behind the scenes finances of Hollywood and it, and your your career. I mean, like having a number one movie on it's been number one for weeks and weeks on Paramount Plus, and that that's a thing. That's a feather in your cap. That's something your agent can talk about. That's you know. And so I would imagine that if piracy is a huge problem, and again, I don't know if it is. So it's not something I get very upset about. I get upset when people mm-hmm. defend it as a victimless crime. You know. That's what bothers yeah. me. I actually don't know the extent yeah. of the problem. So it's not something that really drives yeah. me nuts, except when people are like, it doesn't affect anybody, because it does. Yeah, that's fair. That's a fair way to put it. Uh, all right, I, I have asked everything I wanted to ask, uh, and I will once again uh, plug the movie. It's on Paramount+. Plus. Go check it out. If you've listened to this whole thing and you haven't watched it yet, I don't know what you're doing, but you should you should go see it. Um uh, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If there's anything you think people should know about the making of Orphan First Kill. I mean, I I'm I, I could have probably done another 10 minutes on shooting during COVID and all that. I mean, it's it's a fascinating little uh, window in the, the world of filmmaking mm-hmm. where, like, you know, for, for a year, everyone was locked down all the time and wearing masks mm-hmm. and, and all that. It was crazy. Um, but you know, I, I, I don't know if you want to talk about that or anything well, that's else. Why, anything I think that's else why about... people have flooded back to theaters. Um, it's just like people are psyched to go have communal experiences again, you know? Um, shit. Uh, oh, uh, I will say the one cool thing that this movie freed us up to do in terms of moving forward, uh, is the, the fan response to the batshit, uh, camp of it. And, has really made us realize we have a lot of freedom uh, to not, we can go a little crazy. Like the options are open to us. Like fans basically are coming out and being like, we don't care if original Esther punches her way out of the ice and (laughs) and fucking crawls up and stalks like, you know, and is just her old self. Like they don't care. They just want more Esther. It's going to be, you know, it's about, getting older and older with each passing year and like the idea of making prequel 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 is like wow and we can do it and what's great is that we can still do it because the fans are like fuck it like we'll go on this journey with you (laughs) which we didn't know if they would we thought they'd be like yeah but i think what people appreciate is big swings people are like they're taking a big swing and i think that's what this horror fall thing is they're Hot, hot or, or fall. fall. I think people are psyched that movies are like taking big swings. We've kind of moved out of that era of the, you know, the easy blue tinted remake uh, dominating yeah. horror. And now we have like shit like Mandy and like Barbarian and like Orphan yeah. First Kill where you're just like, blah! <laughs> you're just like throwing crazy onto the screen and people are psyched. 
Yeah, I mean, it is it is a it is a very interesting moment in horror right now. Like you, you mentioned, Barbarian. I mean, there's also mm-hmm. Pearl. Uh, you know, from A24, bodies, bodies, bodies is kind mm-hmm. of in that in that realm. That's more more thriller than horror, I guess. But like, it's uh, it's it is it's a fun time. I mean, how how you know w- w- what have you seen in theaters and loved? Uh, I guess uh, in this in this space, yeah. or what have you seen? Period and loved in this space over the last few months uh, here. That's folks- that's tough because a lot of these things are theaters only, um, and, and I have you know. Two kids and a fucking I'm flying to Atlanta all the time. Uh, but yeah. uh, uh, I don't know. Like we just, I, mean, I just saw X. Like I'm, I'm, I'm behind. Uh-huh. So some of these things I haven't actually seen. Like we, we sat down to watch Pearl the other night, and you can't get it. It's it's ungettable. Yeah. <laughs> you have to go to the theater to yeah. see it. And so it's you know honestly what has been a big problem for me is that we lost our sitter. Our sitter moved to Arizona, and we do not have a sitter for our two kids. And so my wife and I are like. One one of us can go out and see a movie, you know that kind of thing. So. Yeah, that that's a very relatable problem. That is that is a super relatable yeah. problem. All right, we're seeing uh, Halloween ends uh, tomorrow night, so we'll see if that's any good in the theater. Oh, okay, nice. Fun. Is that is that out? It's not, not out it's this not weekend. Out that's out. We're going to a, a next friend's okay. family. Oh, nice. Very exciting. Cool. Um, well, you have to let us know how. Well, have to let me know how that. I have to. I have to see the. I have to see Halloween Kills first. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's I like all the, I like all those. Uh, I like that. Well, the first mm-hmm. two. Um, anyway, I haven't seen the 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 new one yet. But I, I like uh, Bonkers. I like uh, you, actually this this script was written as Orphan First Kill was written. It was called Esther, by the way, up until like right before release. <laughs> and then my my curse of the hyphen uh, reared its ugly head, and suddenly I had another hyphenated movie. And I wrote it as like a straight gothic thriller, like it's a you know. It was not written to be as campy as it was, and Brent leaned into that and poured some gasoline on it, and it really worked. It, people, that's what people really, really responded to. Uh, check it out again. Go sign up for Paramount Plus. Watch it. Keep it on the on the charts over there. You're you're doing you're doing a good thing by doing that. Um, all right. Uh, I am Sunny Bunch. Thanks again, David, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'll see you guys then. Mm-hmm.